family. My name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic. Um, it's nice to be here tonight. Uh, family is something that like any meeting I go to, I, I truly feel like everyone's family that I go there. And I think uh, probably I'll, I'll probably, one of my favorite parts from the book is directly related to the family. Um, I never knew if I'd have any family around me ever again. I uh, definitely didn't think I deserved to have any family around me uh, for a very long time. And uh, so it's definitely, it's a fucking trip to think that, you know, there is as much family and just getting through the holiday season and I was able to spend as much time as I was with, uh, with, my, with my parents, with my, my sisters, my nieces. It was kind of cool. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll go back just a little bit. Um, I got sober many times. Um, I always had a really cool sober date that I thought was like, oh, this number lines up and means something really cool or it looks really cool. And then I'd go get loaded again and I'd be like, damn it, I got to get another one. And then that new sober date was like a really fucking cool sober date. And then I'd get loaded again. And, um, and now the, my favorite sober date is the one I have right now. And hopefully I don't have to come up with any other cool sober dates. Uh, but it's February 8th of 2012. Um, I moved here in about 20 days will be a year in Austin. I came from Phoenix. And the cool thing about moving in sobriety is that you have like built in friends. Like people have to be fucking cool with you. Um, they don't have an option. So if you go somewhere, it's like you just show up to a meeting, put your hand out and, uh, and people have to like give you their number and say, you should come hang out with us, even if they don't want to. And it's like, all right, I can, I can be okay here. I like it. Um, and that happened here for me. Um, and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for that. Uh, my family growing up was, we, we were from the Midwest before we moved to Phoenix. I moved there when I was about three years old, but we, we were south of Chicago and in the Midwest, I don't know if any of you guys have family there from the Midwest, but drinking is big, like a lot of places. Uh, but we would always have big family parties. So there was always the pre-party, there was the party, there was the after party, and then there was the gentleman's nightcap. And uh, from a very, very young age, I got invited to, well, I wasn't really invited, um, but I partook with my sister and cousins and in all of those phases. And I remember the first time I got invited to the gentleman's nightcap, I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, my grandfather said, come out, um, you know, drink this. It'll help you go to sleep and it'll grow hair on your chest. And he gave me a couple fingers of Cuddy Sark whiskey and I absolutely hated it. Um, but I was like, this is kind of cool. I got to sit up real late with all with my uncles and my dad and my grandfather. Um, and when, you know, when I'd go home from those trips, because those would be, be go back to visit family and we'd fly back out to Arizona. Um, well, we had that same little like liquor cabinet that I was told to stay away from it when we were at these parties. But we had the same one in Arizona and my parents would leave to go to work and I'd invite all the friends over in the morning before school and we'd hop into that liquor cabinet you know, second, third, fourth grade, and start taking shots of whatever. And we'd hop on our bikes and we'd, uh, we'd play follow the leader on our way to school, laughing and riding through people's yards and kicking stuff over on our bikes and, uh, and go about our day and nothing crazy ever happened. Um, as I got a little older, it was acceptable to have one drink at the family function. And this is probably like eighth, ninth grade around there. Um, it was okay to have one, one drink. Um, so we learned quickly if we either went to a store, which is what we had to do eventually, 
But if we went to a store, if we stole a bottle of liquor early on in the evening and hid it, that we could keep our one drink full all night long and no one would know. So I'd still be walking around and my dad would come over and look at my cup. And he'd kind of give me this look and be like, huh, still your first drink, yeah? And I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. He knew exactly what was going on. He knew his bottle of liquor was missing. Um, And that's why we had to start stealing from the stores. Uh, And things went on like that for a long time. You know, no no consequences. We had a good time. Uh, Very quickly in high school, you know, it was the the Thursday, Friday would come around. Where's the keg going to be at? Where are we getting fucked up this weekend? that that would pass and then very quickly we realized like why do we have to wait for friday night and saturday night to get fucked up like we can drink any night of the week and um so so very soon it was you know tuesday wednesday as soon as we'd get out of school we'd be straight over to a friend starting to smoke weed and starting to drink and um Things went on like that for a while. I somehow gra- I graduated high school. I don't remember doing any work for it. I graduated. I somehow got into a college. I do remember that. I don't know how I got in because I got a. I don't think it's a good score. I'm, it was like a four hundred on the SATs. Um, I couldn't. I went. I attempted to take it twice, but both times I was extremely hungover. The first time I didn't even. I just didn't even try. Second time I was like, I have to. I paid for it again. My parents are gonna kill me. I couldn't read the paper because I was so hungover. Um, so I just filled out what my neighbor had next to me. And it turns out all those tests they hand out are at different sections all over the place. So when I got to like 15 and my section was done and I was looking over there and hers kept going, I'm like, uh-oh, something's wrong. Um, so I just filled out the Scantron, turned it in, and left. Um, still, somehow I got accepted into a college and uh, I, there I could really start to drink the way I wanted to drink. And it, it turned into uh, four or five, six nights a week blacking out. Um, those, those nights were fun, a lot of fun. I would wake up in the morning in the most random spots with the most random people and shit and whatever going on around me. Oftentimes it was in jail. Um, no idea how I got there. But I'd get back to my place and we would laugh and we'd talk about all the stories about all the stupid shit I did. And um, that went on for a while and and I finally got to a point where I was like, man, I'm never going to finish school, like ever. Um, And I kind of put drinking on the back burner, started focusing on school. To be honest, I started stealing tests really well um, and cheating really, really good. Um, And I got through school. But right around that same time, I got introduced... uh, to some some pain pills from a friend's car accident and those turned into some street substance because those ran out um, and I got a real job because I graduated college so what's the next thing go get a real job and that real job started throwing like real responsibility at me to where I couldn't like pay the TA or steal something and just get by I had to like show up and do something for this <clears throat> responsibility and I wasn't used to that um, so my the only thing I knew to do was to turn around and run. Um, and I did I did exactly that. That first job landed me in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I was there for about almost a year. And I, I couldn't have run from that job any quicker. Uh, and I ended up back at my parents' house because anytime shit starts going bad for me and I start falling backwards and I have no idea where I'm going to land, my parents were always right there to catch me. 
right? I had that safety net no matter what happened. I could lean back and I knew I was going to be caught and I was going to be okay. Um, you know, I, I did that for a number of years of get a job because I could show up and look like I could be present. I was very presentable. I knew how to say the right things to people to make them believe in me. But it was all lies. It was all BS. Um, I knew how to read people and tell them exactly what they needed to hear right at the right time. I didn't know how to follow through on any of those actions. So when I'd get that next job and things would be looking good and we have a, oh, let's have a party with all the aunts and uncles because Matt got this great job again, right? They'd still throw me a party. Um, I would end up quitting or getting fired and running far away from it. Um, and all meanwhile this is going on, I'm showing up in a detox center, after detox center, after mm -hmm. hospital stay, after ho like hospital after hospital. Um, I'm waking up in the back of ambulances. I'm waking up on hospital beds with doctors telling me, son, like you're lucky to be alive. Mm -hmm. um, you cannot continue to go on living, living your life this way or you will die. I remember when I heard that, I waited for the doctor to walk out and I ripped everything out of my arm and I jumped up and I'm like, fuck this, I need to go get fucked up. I was on, uh, they had me like secured in that room that time and I couldn't leave and I was, I raised hell, but every other time I was able to just jump up, go out and call exactly who I needed to call to feel better and not have to worry about any of that shit. Because I never, all I knew how to do when responsibilities come is either fall back and just hope that mom and dad catch me or get fucked up. And sometimes I wanted to just keep going on and keep going on and getting fucked up. And other times I just didn't have the energy. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that spot where you're just like, what, I can't, like, I can't do this. Like, I can't keep doing this. Like, no way. And that's when I would, that's when I would show up to that detox center. And they'd bring me in and they'd be like, oh, look who's back again, right? Um, and they'd run my vitals and they'd say, well, we got to observe you for 24 hours before we can get you a bed. But I figured out the whole system. And if I drank water right before they did vitals, I could throw up all over the nurse's equipment as she came by. And they'd be like, he's bad. We need to get him a bed. He's detoxing, right? All manipulation. That's how I know. I know how to do all those, that shit really, really well. I'm sure some of you guys may know what I'm talking about. Um, well, I was at this meeting. They made, they forced us at the hospitals. They didn't make us go to AA or CA or any of the, the any of those. Um, but at this detox center, they made us go. And uh, I remember they were like, AA in 10 minutes. And I'm like, great, here we go again. And I go in and there's, I'm sitting in this room. It's one of those same places Bob was just talking about where people are shitting on themselves and puking on themselves and drooling and saying fuck you to every word that comes out of the speaker's mouth, right? No one cares. No one is listening to them. Um, it's a state-run facility, and it's dirty. It's gross. Like, trust me, you don't want to be there. And it, this was comfortable for me. This was my home. Like, I felt comfortable there. Um, I didn't have to worry about things, right? And there was this, this guy running a meeting, and he sat up in the front. He was this huge Mexican dude with a big old ponytail and a huge, like, a leather vest. And he was this big-ass biker dude. And he was pounded on the table up front, and he was like, you guys are going to all gonna fucking die and he's like screaming and I'm just sitting in the back like smirking at him and I'm just like and he like finally catches me laughing at him and smirking um and he like leans up and he's like you think this is funny 
And I'm like, well, I don't know, but about what you mean this, but you, yeah, your life's a joke. Like, yes, I think your life is funny. Your life is an absolute mess and a joke. And he's, of course, he knows a lot more than me, but I didn't know that. And, uh, and he said, oh, okay, okay, uh, this is your first time here, right? And I was like, no, I didn't know. I'm like, no, I've been here before. And he's like, okay, uh, tell you what. And he goes on with his meeting and when he finishes up, he's like, if you don't wanna do any of that shit I just talked about, getting a sponsor, going through the steps, being honest, like he names off some of these like basic things that we have to do. He's like, why don't you just on your way out, write your name down, make a little reservation for you. So they have your bed waiting for you when you come back. And I was like, oh, hell no. Right? Like when I get out of here, I'm going to show this guy that he is so wrong. He does not know me. He does not know me. And also he doesn't know what I'm going through. Like how could this guy have any clue about anything in my life? Right? He doesn't know the shit that I've done. He doesn't know the nothing. Um, I was out of there and I was, I was loaded within a matter of minutes. Right? Um, and he was right. And I showed back up there. And um, I remember that time when I showed up, it was another, once again, I was just tired. I was exhausted. I didn't want to keep going on. I just didn't have the energy. Like, Right, that hustle as soon as you wake up in the morning of like, all right, here we go. Who are we going to rob? Who are we going to steal from? Who are we going to cheat? Where are we going to break into? You know, all that stuff. Like, how am I? All those things that I would do from the moment I woke up till the moment I either passed out or went to bed every day. Absolutely exhausting. Well, I showed up this time. to that halfway or to this detox center again, I weighed about 125 pounds. I was covered in head to toe in bed bug bites. Um, right, I hadn't eaten in a very long time. I was hardly sleeping. Uh, I was living at a, I think they call them crack houses. Um, um, I was living at one of those, um, right? I didn't know, I slept with this big ass kitchen knife next to my bed because I didn't know what was gonna happen every single night. And I usually pretend sleep and I had these just giant cockroaches running all over my face. And I was okay with it, right? I was just like, this is, this is okay. This is fine. Um, but kind of what led up to me going to that, into that time is uh, I was doing some bad stuff to get drugs and get alcohol and do whatever I could. And I was asked to take something to this young girl. And I remember when I took this thing to this young girl that day, uh, we made a quick little exchange and I remember as I handed it to her, we, we locked eyes. And, uh, and she was gone, right? But when we locked eyes, like, I was stuck. And I remember staring into this girl's eyes. And it was like, for the first time, I had seen a mirror in a very long time. And I like, really hadn't seen a mirror, but seeing this girl's eyes, like, I was stuck. And I remember I was just staring, and I was just like, Holy shit. And I remember looking at these two black, empty, empty eyes with nothing staring at me in return. I was like, that's how I feel right now, right? That's how I feel, just like her. And I remember I just stood there and who knows, she was long gone. And it felt like 30 minutes had passed with me standing there. And I went back in 
And I went into the bathroom because all I know how to do when I feel like shit is to try to cry to give myself some self-pity because I didn't know what else to do. Um, and I wiped off this mirror and I started running through every shitty thing I could talk to tell about myself. And I couldn't get one single tear to come out. I was like, damn, right? What the hell? Why can't I cry? I've done this so many times before. I'm like, you know what? I can cry in a hot shower. So I open the shower and I climb into this disgusting ass bathtub that no human being has any business getting in. And I lay down in a fetal position with the hot run water running off me. And I just laid there thinking, this is it, right? Like this is where I'm gonna die. And not one person is gonna give a single fuck. And uh, I picked up the phone. It wasn't my phone because I couldn't afford one. And uh, I made the, I called the only number I knew to call at that time. And it rang a little bit and I heard on the other end, hello. And I sat there and I heard, hello, hello. And then finally the voice said, son, I'm glad you're alive, right? I love you. I still hadn't said anything. And I still sat there and he said, where are you? I can't, there's nothing I can do for you, but I'll take you back to that detox one more time. And I said, please do. And then I said all kinds of crazy demands, right? I'm like, bring a carton of these cigarettes. I need Jack in the box. I need this. I started setting all these demands, right? And don't come now because I got shit to do. Yeah. Right? Because that's what we do. That's what I do. And I checked into this detox center again, and the same guy and the same staff that I've seen over the years, every single time I went, and they asked me, what the fuck are you going to do different this time? And my response always was like, go to the gym. I'm going to take dance classes. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to do these things. Everything except the steps and get a sponsor, right? Everything. Um, I remember he looked at me, and he's like, what are you going to do different? And this time I had no response. All I said, I was like, Tim, I have no clue. I don't know. Right? And I remember he said some of the most stupidest shit I've ever heard. And he got it from the rooms. He was like, nothing changes if nothing changes. <laughs> I'm like, great. And, uh, and he's like, you know what the, the good thing about that is, though? I was like, what? And he's like, everything changes if everything changes. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like all right. And he's like, have you, have you tried doing... And he laid out a couple of things, and I said, absolutely not. He said, well, why don't we get you to a halfway house to start? Why don't we get you a bed? And uh, they arranged some place for me, but there was, uh, there was no room that night. They didn't have an open bed for me, and, and uh, I was getting discharged. And I knew I was going to go drink, right? I knew it. I knew if I went back out to the streets, I knew exactly what was going to happen. So once again, I called the only person I knew to call. And by this time, like my neighborhood, they were all warned, like, call the police if you see them. Like something bad's going to happen. Don't have anything to do with Matt. My neighborhood knew me well. We grew up there. Um, and I said, Dad, I need a place to stay. And he said, let me talk with your mother. Uh, call me back. And I called him back. And he said, okay, we made some, some rules but we'll let you, if you, if you listen to the, if you follow our rules, you can come stay here for the evening. Fucking rules, right? Are you kidding me? Um, 
So I remember I went there and I had been to AA meetings before and for some reason AA meetings made my head slow down. When my mind was going a million miles a minute, it made things slow down and feel like for that hour, things are going to be okay. I got to that, I got to their house and I said, Dad, I need to borrow your truck. I need to go to a meeting. Like, I have to go to a meeting. And I remember he just stared at me. And I just stared back. All right, and eventually he puts his hands out and he drops his keys into my hand. Right, and I'm like, thanks. And uh, I go running out the door and I realize like I forgot something and I turn around and I run in and the door slams shut behind me. And I come running right back and I lean into the kitchen where my dad was just standing, not even 20, 30 seconds ago. And, uh, and he wasn't there. I was gonna say bye dad again, cause I, he, but he wasn't there. And I was like, well, that's weird. He was just standing there. And the TV was on, and it has now, this little TV had the Diamondbacks game on, and it was now turned off. And I'm like, what the fuck? And they had this this uh, this uh, island in their, their kitchen. I remember I'm looking in there, and all of a sudden I hear, like, this noise, faint noise. I'm like, what's that, right? See, now I had heard my dad cry before. But it's not something I heard often. And I remember I walked up really, really slowly and I looked around the edge of that, of that island and there was my dad on the ground in a ball with his hands over his face bawling. See, he thought I left, right? You think he's worried about the truck that he just gave me the keys to? Hell no. He doesn't know if he's ever gonna see me again. And I remember I was standing there watching my dad cry and he thought he was alone. And I'm thinking to myself for the very first time, holy shit, this is because of me. Like what? This man's doing this right now because of me. It was the first time I had ever realized that all that shit I was doing, every single time I had someone come to me and say, Matt, we care. We love you. We want to help you. Let us help you. All my, all, and my response every single time is, fuck you. Get away from me. I don't need your shit. Leave me alone. This is my life. You don't know anything that's going on with me. Right? All of a sudden, it all hit me, and I realized, holy shit, this is affecting other people. And I remember... He looked up and he saw me and he starts trying to get up off the ground and his voice is cracking and he starts wiping his eyes and he's starting to apologize. He's trying to say, I'm sorry. He's apologizing to me, right? I remember I went down and I put my arm around him and we just sat there and cried. I didn't know what to say. I had nothing to say. I had said everything before and not one time had I ever fucking meant it. And I said, Dad, I gotta get up, I gotta go to that meeting. And he shook his head and I was off and I went to the meeting and I went to that halfway house and the scary, it was the scariest day walking into that halfway house and everyone there put their arms wide open and took me in. And they said, hey, hang with us. We'll show you how to get through this. We'll show you how to make easy living. We'll teach you the rules. And uh, we started 
we started hanging out at the pool together. We started going to meetings together. We started going out for coffee and food before and after meetings. We started going to movies. We started going to sober parties. Um, we started getting involved with different committees and all that kind of stuff with AA and CA and HA and CMA because I can identify with all of them. And, and uh, the craziest things happen there is all these people where I'm used to walking up to them and telling them exactly what they need to hear because I'm really good at doing that, would call me out on my shit. And they'd laugh at me. And I'd be like, what do you mean? How do you, what do you mean I'm lying? And they're like, fuck you, dude. We're one of you. We get it. You can't pull that shit on us. And I'm like, damn. And they started holding me accountable. And I got a sponsor. And the best thing that sponsor could have ever done for me was uh, really slow down with what it meant to be an alcoholic. Because I had shown up to meetings and I would read the 12 steps and I'm like, well, I went through all 12 in this meeting. Um, and he's like, yeah, but like, have you ever admitted you were powerless, that your life was unmanageable? And he kind of, I was like, well, yeah, I've done it like 80 times by now. <laughs> and he explained what it means to be a true alcoholic, right? Um, can I see your book real quick? And a piece of gum. That would be awesome. <laughs> I was not planning on speaking. My mouth is dry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm going to go in reverse real quick. Because that's kind of the way he laid it out for me. Is He's like, Matt, we got a problem going on with our spirit. We got something on the inside of us that's fucked up. We got to take a look at that. Because if we can start mm -hmm. to look here, we don't even have to worry about all that other shit with drinking. That shit's not going to come up. I didn't know what that meant. Um, but he, uh, he read out the bedevilments. We were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And he said, here's the thing is those, are, those things, when we recognize those in our lives, those are things that affect our spirit. And when we don't take action on those, for us, well, he didn't say for us, because at that time, who knows if I'm an alcoholic, right? I had only read it in the, on the board. I didn't know what it meant. He said, for me as an alcoholic, those are bad things for me. Because working in reverse, the way that goes for me is when I start having these bedevilments, these bad thoughts about who I am, what I am, all that stuff, it goes to my mind saying, you know what? I can make this better. It's called the mental obsession, right? And I start obsessing about how I can make this better. And for me, as an alcoholic, alcohol is going to make it better, right? So I go pick up a drink, and next thing you know, that phenomenon of craving kicks in. And shit, I don't know how to stop all of a sudden because that's what it's called, the phenomenon of craving. Once we start, can't actively predict when we're going to stop. So he said, if, if it's that shitty thinking about who I am and what I am that kicks in that mental obsession, why don't we take care of that stuff from the inside? Why don't we take care of that spiritual malady? That way we don't even get to the point of start thinking, you know what can make this better? And uh, we sat there for probably about three hours while he tried to ask me if I was an alcoholic because he wasn't gonna tell me I was an alcoholic. I had plenty of doctors and people around me do that for many years. And eventually I'm like, why are you asking me this question over and over and over? 
He's like, he kept asking why everything I said. And finally, because like, I'm an alcoholic. And he's like, there you go. It took you three hours to say that? Um, and I got it. And it was for the first time, the way I had it laid out for me, I understood and I felt more than what it meant saying it, of what that felt like to be an alcoholic. Right? Um, so there was a lot of fun stuff I did, like I said, all the stuff at the halfway house with my friends and, and doing all that. But um, I went on a retreat one time and they were passing around a book and they said, everyone highlight your favorite part in the book and we're going to do a sobriety countdown and give it to the person with the least sobriety. Well, I didn't have a favorite quote, so it got to me. And I was sitting around some people and I want to impress them, I'm like, yeah, and I just highlighted some shit and passed it. No clue what I highlighted. Um, now, if when when that's happened, it... Uh, I have an actual page I like to go to um, and highlight because I've read the book now and I read it with other people and I understand it and it's done some weird things in my life. Um, but it says Henry Ford, this is on page 124, uh, Henry Ford once made a wise remark to the effect that experience is a thing of supreme value in life. That is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. The alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset to, of the family, and frequently is the most uh, is almost the only one. Wait, my background, all that fucked up shit I've done, all the people I've hurt, everything I've done—that's my best asset. You better believe it. It definitely is. Now, if you're brand new, you may be like, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I don't blame you because at one point I would have had no clue how that made any sense at all as well. But my past, what I've gone through, all the shit that I've lived through, all the horror I've put other people through is by far the best asset I have today and who, who I am today. I'm so much a better person, not perfect person. I still do stupid stuff, right? I still have my boss send me emails and I'm like, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> that stuff, my dog still just like every once in a while she'll turn her head and look at me and I'm like, I know, I know. Um, things happen, right? But I recognize when those things happen, right? I can see and feel how it affects my spirit. And I have really cool people around me because when I moved to Austin, I showed up to some meetings and I was like, hey, I'm Matt, I'm new. Everyone's like, damn it, we have to fucking give this guy our phone number, right? And I use those phone numbers and they use them calling me and they invite me places and we go out and do things. We go to meetings, we go to food, we go to coffee, right? We do all those same sort of things I was doing back in Arizona. Whoa, it's crazy, it works here. Now, for years, I did not want to do any of that stuff, and I got the exact same thing. Showing up to that state-run detox, wanting to absolutely kill myself, wondering, this is, like, this is it, right? This is all life has to offer. Man, I really got fucked in this life. Was I putting anything, effort, to get something good back? Absolutely not. Now I recognize that I have to put something out to get something that feels like, hey, you know what? I belong. I'm a part of, because it's really easy for me to think that I'm not a part of and that I don't belong still. 
And those are the times when I'm not putting myself out. As soon as I decide to just shut down and be quiet, man, it's scary to think what really could happen, like where I really could go. Um, and there's probably some readings we got to finish up with. So uh, I'm glad I was able to come by and unexpectedly talk with you guys a little bit. Um, but I'm glad I did. And once again, thank you, family. Yeah.